hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone, if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Today's guest is an author and internal medicine physician. She is a graduate of Columbia University and New York University School of Medicine, and she completed her training at Bellevue Hospital in New York City. She lives with her family in the Midwest. It's my pleasure to welcome Lydia Kang. Lydia, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be here. Yeah. So the book we're talking about today for our listeners is The Half-Life of Ruby Fielding. Gorgeous, gorgeous cover. I'm definitely going to stand off a jump off of a shelf, quite honestly. And I'm just going to give our listeners a bit of an overview of what's on the flap copy. Brooklyn, 1942. War rages overseas as brother and sister Will and Maggie Scripps contribute to the war effort stateside. Ambitious Will secretly scouts for the Manhattan Project, while grief-stricken Maggie works at the Navy Yard, writing letters to her dead mother between shifts. But the siblings' quiet lives change when they discover a beautiful woman hiding under their backstairs. 
the stranger harbors an obsession with poisons, an affection for fine things, and a singular talent for killing small creatures. As she draws Will and Maggie deeper into her mysterious past, they both begin to suspect she's quite dangerous, all while falling helplessly under her spell. With whispers of spies in dark corners and the world's first atomic bomb in the works, the visitor's sudden presence in Maggie and Will's lives raises questions about who she is and what she wants. Is this mysterious woman someone they can trust or a threat to everything they hold dear? So as our listeners can hear, really, really compelling premise. Now, Lydia, this is like what, your sixth, seventh book? I tried to have a look and I couldn't tell exactly. How how many books is this now? I think this is my 10th book. Not necessarily my 10th novel, but I think it's my 10th book. Holy heck. Right. So the first (laughs) thing I have to ask you, because this is something that comes up all the time on the podcast, because so many of our listeners are holding down jobs, they have families, they're trying to find time to write in between. You're a physician and you have so much going on. So firstly, can I just ask how it is that you manage to fit writing into that kind of schedule? Well, I am lucky in that I work part-time at my physician job, so that allows me to have good chunks of time during the week to write. Early on when I started writing, I was still part-time, but I was working a lot more hours, and I had very, very young children at home, which means I didn't have a whole lot of time to write. And at that time, I would squeeze it in everywhere I could. So after the kids went to bed, I would write. If I was on a really good roll, I would sometimes write until midnight or one in the morning and then pay the price for the next couple days. But if I was on a roll, I would just keep going. And I remember my mother asking me at the time, she she was like, I don't understand how you can do all this stuff. You've got this other job, you've got your family. And I would tell her, well, I don't, I haven't been watching television. Don't worry about it. Our listeners are used to animals in the background. Seriously, carry on. <laughs> so I would tell her, I was like, I, I come home from work or whenever after I'm done taking care of the kids and things like that. And I don't, I didn't watch any television. I didn't watch any Netflix. I didn't, I just didn't do any of that kind of stuff. I just spent every moment of my waking time writing. And I don't necessarily recommend that you do nothing but write because you do need input from reading and watching and absorbing other people's creative work just to get ideas and to get refreshed and see what else is out there. But when I'm in the mode, I don't oftentimes take in as much material because I'm outputting so much. So the other thing I would tell people is that know that your pace of how you are going to produce work and create is not going to be the same as everybody else. So you will meet writers who can put out a first draft in six weeks, 80,000 words in, in four weeks or six weeks. It's, I can't do that. And you will also read writers who can put out a first draft and it takes them five or six years to do that. So somewhere in there is going to be your, your place where you are able to write and try to create and it's never going to be the same as somebody else. And I have to say that that whole comparison game, which is something we can talk about later, is a very slippery slope and it's very dangerous. So I happen to be a very relatively fast writer in that I generally, it takes me about three months to draft a first, a novel, like seven, anywhere from 75,000 to 100,000 words. It's a lot of work and it's a lot of time spent just at the computer, but that's about how long it takes me. So on the grand scheme of things, I'm a fairly quick writer. So that, and, that helps. <laughs> and, and in terms of that drafting, does that come after a period of intense plotting so that by the time you sit down to draft, you know exactly what has to go there? Or is it a case of even though you don't plan it completely, you're still able to bang it out in those three months? 
So yes, I have to have it all plotted out. I can't begin a book until I know how the book ends. So it all has to be there. And as far as when I say all has to be there, I don't mean every scene is plotted out. I usually know kind of beginning to end what the major beats are, and then roughly what's happening in each act of the book. But sometimes I'll say, so-and-so finds out about X, and that's, that's my plot beat, right? And I'll be I'll hit that chapter where I have to figure it out. And I'll be like, well, I don't actually know how he finds out. I have to, I haven't gone that far. So within each scene and each chapter, oftentimes I have to figure that out on the fly. So there's a certain amount of, you know, people talk about plotting and pantsing their way through a story. And I am probably 80% plotter and 25, 20% pantser in that, in a given scene. I know something has to happen. I have no idea how it's going to happen. And I, sometimes I'm sitting there like just staring out the window for an hour before I'm like, okay, this is how it's going to happen. And then I, I write it. And that staring into space is working. This is difficult for many of our family members to understand. I know a lot of the moms who listen to the podcast struggle to carve out this time for themselves because they feel guilty that they're not spending it with smaller children. And it doesn't help that so much of writing is spent just staring outside the window so that when people walk past, they were like, you told me you needed this time to write, but you're not writing. But that's such an integral part of the process. And I'm always so fascinated by how different writers approach writing. And I find that it's the sort of doctors, physicians, lawyers who like to plan everything out because I feel like their brains are so analytical and they need to do that. For me, if I know how a story ends or what's going to happen, I have zero interest in writing it. I write to find out, but I'm like really right-brained and all over the place. So again, for our listeners, there is no right way of doing something. There is no wrong way of doing something. There are multiple, I think, infinite ways of doing it. And the key is to finding your particular way and what works for you. Now, Lydia, in all of these other books that you've written, I went quite far back to some of your earlier books and very different to what you're writing now. And even your more recent ones, in terms of, yes, they were historical fiction, just as The Half-Life of Ruby Fielding is historical fiction, but they were happening in like the 1800s, whereas this happens in 1942. Could you speak a bit about the evolution of your work in terms of genre, why you changed along the way, and if this had an impact in terms of agents, if you had to switch agents, or if you've managed to keep the same agent despite sort of moving around genre-wise? Sure. So yeah, as far as my the evolution of the of the work that I write, I have always had trouble sticking to one genre and even one readership. So my first book was Control and its sequel Catalyst. They were both young adult science fiction. And at the time that it came out, which was 2013 and 2015, there was a huge wave of science fiction that was already on its way down. So think about like Divergence and also Paranormal. So science fiction fantasy, I should say, was really big then. And the book didn't sell terribly well. I mean, it, it found fans, which I was really happy about. But after I had written those, I immediately launched into these other ideas. And one of them was a sci was science fiction, but it was in space. One was a contemporary paranormal book that took place on Lake Superior that ended up being The November Girl, which had a big fantasy element to it. And I remember my agent being like, you know, this is... And I even had a middle grade book. So I wrote an entire middle grade novel. And it, it just... My editor at Penguin just wasn't as into it. 
And my agent was really worried that I was just spreading myself too thin too quickly. Like you, you should probably stick to this. But if you go all over the place so soon, you, you may have difficulty keeping a readership. You're just gonna have to start from scratch every time you write something that's totally different. But I, I couldn't help it. Like I, my ideas come from all different places. And I, I had a lot of difficulty sort of staying in my literary lane, so to speak. So what ended up happening was, you know, because the science fiction book didn't do as well, but then nobody was buying science fiction. So I kind of felt like, okay, I have, I have kind of had the permission to go and write something different because this isn't going anywhere anyway. And so I ended up selling two books, The November Girl and Toxic, which was the spaceship idea to Entangled Publishing. But they were they were okay with the fact that it wasn't exactly the same as my first two books. But the funny thing that happened was right around the time that I sold The November Girl, I was also playing around with A Beautiful Poison, which is historical. And I was also trying to pitch a nonfiction medical history book that ended up being Quackery, A Brief History of the Worst Ways to Cure Everything. So I was in this sort of desperate place where I figured I'm not going to have longevity. I'm not going to have a writing career. I had these two books and I feel like nobody wants to touch me now. So I kind of put my, I had several pots on the stove cooking because I didn't know what was going to sell. And I had so many ideas and I just kept writing them. And interestingly, what happened was A Beautiful Poison, which I had originally written as young adult, it turned out was actually adult. And I didn't realize it at the time. And so once we tried to pitch it to adult publishers, it sold. And it sold around the same time that Quackery sold, around the same time that The November Girl sold. So I went from sort of like everything was dead in the water to I had three books coming out in the same year. It was an absolutely, that year was just bananas because A Beautiful Poison came out in August and then Quackery came out, I think in like October, November, October, and then November Girl came out in November. And I was just doing tons and tons of book stuff that year. I, I remember getting, I think I probably got the flu that year. I was like so tired and I was so overworked. So as it's happened, my writing career has just gone in multiple directions because I was never able to stay put. And so what my agent figured out, I still have the same agent that I had from 10 years ago, Eric Myers. He actually moved agencies, but I always stayed with him. So he was at the Spieler agency. He moved to Distal and Goderich. And then now he's a solo, I want to say solo practitioner. That's what doctors say. He's a solo practice guy in the agency world. And he's come to realize that I am all over the place. My ideas come from everywhere, that I'm a very quirky writer. I have ideas that sometimes can't be very, like books that can't very well be pitched in a clean little sentence. But he's okay with that because he's realized like, okay, this is what, this is what you do. This is your, your brand is quirky, sometimes with medical aspects, sometimes dabbling into my culture as a Korean American. And he's okay with that. And I'm okay with that. And it does mean that sometimes it's harder for me to sell things because I will sometimes go out there and people will be like, you haven't done anything like this before. And I'm like, wow, that's, that's kind of what I do. So I think there are going to be some people who who stay in their lane and they do nothing but the same thing. They write like romance novels that have a very particular formula that works really, really well. And they're happy doing that. I personally, I get very bored with writing the same thing over and over again. So even when I'm writing historical fiction, all these books, so A Beautiful Poison, The Impossible Girl, Opium and Absence, and The Half-Life of Ruby Fielding, all have a similar string in that they all take place in New York City. They are all historical fiction. 
And they all have elements of this one line of family members, of female family members that span a century. But I can't keep doing this forever. Like at some point, I know that I'm going to get bored and I need to move on as well. So I don't know if that's going to be historical fiction in a different country or historical fiction with a different family or something like that. Or if I'm going to give it a pause for a second, I'm not sure. But I do know that I already have ideas for like five other things that I really, really want to do. And they are nothing like anything that I've written before. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. I'm exactly the same as you, so which is why I am fascinated by how you've managed to navigate it because people do want to put you in a box and they do want to be what's your author brand, stick to your author brand. And I love that quirkiness can now be an author brand. That's what I'm going to be telling people my author brand is as we move around. And I think it's stifling to our creativity to be expected to only operate in one genre or write one particular thing. I think we really challenge ourselves as writers when we step outside of our lane, push the boundaries. Something you said earlier, and I know many of our listeners will be, Bianca, you've got to ask this question, because we have agents on the show who read query letters and opening pages, and we critique them to try and help our listeners query their dream agents and land their dream agents. And often we'll get something that someone is either classified as YA and our agents go, no, we think it's for adults. Or they'll say, this is for adults and our agents are going, no, we think this is YA. So in that book of yours that you thought was YA and then it turned out to be adult, what was the defining characteristics there that made it viable in the adult market when you were unable to sell it in the YA market? How were you able to realize it was one and not the other? So it was actually my original agent for Control and Catalyst who read, I don't think they read the whole thing. I think I gave them, I pitched them a couple of chapters and they were reading it or possibly it was a whole novel. Honestly, I don't remember anymore. So she read this, the characters were all around 18 years old. And she said, this is, this reads as adult. So I didn't even realize it. My agent didn't even realize it. It was my editor who said, this is adult. And the reason why she said that was one, the characters were all 18. So they were technically adults, but they, so they were, you know, on that cusp between being a teenager and being a, being an adult. But all the things that they had to deal with, so one was on, was the, the book opens on her engagement party. So she's about to get married, which is not something that you normally see in a YA book, right? A second one was working in a watch factory and living a pretty harsh life. And the third one was working as a janitor, but trying to become an assistant in a forensics department, the pathology department at Bellevue Hospital. And he was trying to, like, he might get drafted into the war. It's during, it takes place in 1918, so it's during World War One. So he's wondering if he's going to get drafted. So she said, you know, everything that these young adults are dealing with are actually very adult issues. And the tone that I had written with, because it had to reflect the era of the time, was also a little bit more adult. So when I sort of looked through it and read through it, I realized she was totally right. And I didn't have to change the novel at all. We just really just changed our gear. Well, we went on wide submission is what we did and submitted to adult publishing houses that specialized in historical fiction and murder mysteries and that sort of a thing. And it ended up selling to Lake Union, which is an imprint, one of the Amazon publishing imprints. So we were really thrilled about that because that, you know, my editor there who has since left Lake Union, unfortunately, she sort of saw what I was trying to do and really was like, I get it. And I love the chemistry in this. And I love the interactions between these three and what they're dealing with. And you have, because I had a burgeoning forensics department. I had chemistry in here. I had someone who was working in a watch factory and was dying of radiation poisoning, but didn't know it. And, and there was also a 
love triangle between the three of the main characters. So it was very, again, hard to describe what would, and, and the influenza epidemic also sweeps through the book about two thirds of the way through, and they're dealing with World War One. So there was so much going on, but she was like, I get what you were trying to do and you've done it and let's go with it. So in the end, it was a happy accident. I never would have thought that I was going to become a novelist for adult readers. And I have. And I would say that the really intense education that I got with writing young adult very well supported me and put me in the place of being able to write adult. And I I can tell you there's a lot of young adult writers who were all writing at the same time that I was. So this is like in the early 20 teens, we were all coming out with books at that time. And many of them have gone on to become adult novelists. El Cosimano is an example of that. But many of us have actually left either left YA or have like a toe in YA or one foot in YA, but are also writing adult as well. Because we find that it's, it's very easy to transition from one to the other, simply because writing good YA, there's no difference between writing good YA and writing anything else that's good, right? It's not like you're, when you write young adult, it's not like you're dumbing it down for an audience. You have to write really great three-dimensional characters. You have to have a gripping plot. You have to have all those things that are necessary to be a good, a good book. And that is those, the same things that you need to do to write for an adult audience. So it wasn't difficult to actually switch from one to the other. I think a lot of people probably have more difficulty switching from writing for adults and going to YA because the YA voice is very challenging to do and to do it correctly. I agree. I've said that I'll try pretty much any genre except memoir or YA. And I think YA is incredibly difficult. And I also think it is so, so competitive as well, which makes it much harder for writers in that genre. Our last question before we're going to have to go, Lydia, is in terms of the research when it comes to writing historical fiction, how much of the research has to happen before so that it can inform the story? I mean, I know that in terms of the Manhattan Project, etc., etc., that informed so much of this novel. And so you had to know all of that before you were writing the story and seeing how the plot would unfold. But in terms of other things like the fashion of the day, which you touch on there in the book, etc. How much of that do you need to know before you begin writing? And how much is it you get to point X and you're like, oh, shit, let me figure out what kind of stockings they wore. Let me go have a look and then I'm going to come back to writing. Because I honestly feel that sometimes research can be used by writers as a form of procrastination. We're so scared of coming to the page that we could spend five years researching something. And the more we learn, the more we realize we know nothing. And so we keep researching. And so for my creative writing students, I'm always saying it needs to be a balance. So what is your advice there? So for me to open up the document and write something on that first page, there's a certain minimum amount of research that I have to do before I get started. So as you know, I plot everything. And in order for me to have the major plot points, I have to know enough of the history for it to actually make sense, or else I might write halfway through and realize, oh, this doesn't even make sense because that never would have happened and I'm going to get called out on it and this this can't work. So there's a, a good amount of research that happens. A couple things. I usually need a map. I usually print out an enormous map that's like the size of like a room so I can see where I'm going. I need to read enough about the language and the history so I and what the town looked like, what New York City looked like at the time. 
so that I can actually imagine being in there. I can like close my eyes and feel like I can smell it and see it and know what the people look like and know what kind of public transportation was going on, that sort of a thing. So all that has to happen. It's the slightly smaller details like, well, exactly which what dress are they wearing? What kind of clothing is there? Like I, I will look into that a little bit beforehand for sure, because I need to know that there's some things that you know make sense. But a lot of times it's very easy for you to go down the rabbit hole and just procrastinate the writing by researching. I was joking about this this weekend at the Annapolis Book Festival. Like I need to know what doorknob it looks like before the person touches the doorknob, twists it open and we begin the scene, right? And you can end up spending like a couple hours on that. And it's, and it, what I end up doing is when I know that I'm doing it, I usually get a feeling in my brain, like you're procrastinating again. What I will do is in the document, in my first draft, I will just put like three asterisks in there. And that basically means go look this up later, but just keep going on. And so my first draft will usually be riddled with notes to myself and asterisks saying, figure out what this building looks like, or don't forget to make sure you get the right transportation for this, or what clothing to wear, TBA, like to be announced, you know. So I, I do a lot of that, but they're always minor things, the very, very big things I have to do beforehand. And it can take weeks and weeks and sometimes months for me to be able to, to get that. But generally, I know I'm ready to write when I can close my eyes and see it. And if I can't see it, then I, I still have more work to do. Excellent, excellent advice there. Lydia, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to us. For our listeners, we will put up the Half-Life of Ruby Fielding on our bookshop.org page. Remember, if you order through there, you're supporting an independent bookstore, you're supporting the author, and you're also supporting the podcast, which we appreciate. Definitely go out, get this book, give it a read. For those of you writing historical fiction, I'd go so far to say it's an absolute must read. But for everybody else, it's such an excellent read in terms of creating tension, upping stakes, all the things that we're talking about on the podcast. So thank you. Thank you, Lydia. And, and we wish you much luck with the book. Thank you so much for having me. Good luck, everybody. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. 
But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Today's guest grew up in rural eastern Ontario and spent many years in Canada making theatre before coming to the United States. She holds an MFA from the Iowa Playwrights Workshop. Her work has been published in Third Coast Magazine Reunion, The Dallas Review, Storybrink, and in the anthology Long Story Short. She teaches writing at Skidmore College and lives in upstate New York with her husband and son. It's my pleasure to welcome Jennifer Fawcett. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah. For our listeners, the book that we're discussing today is Beneath the Stairs. Uh, I absolutely loved this book. It was incredibly twisty and turny and dark and yeah, a bit like a bit of everything all over the place. I'm going to want to discuss how you pitched this because you are a debut novelist. So can you take us through your journey to publication, please, Jennifer? Absolutely. It's a long journey. <laughs> so this book actually began during NaNoWriMo, which is the National Novel Writing Month, which really should be international because it's all over the world. And that was over 10 years ago. I'm a playwright by training, and but I was at a, a period of immigration limbo and I couldn't work and I didn't have any money. And so I had nothing but time. And a friend told me about NaNoWriMo and sort of challenged me to do it. And so I thought I would try it. And the goal of NaNoWriMo is to write 50,000 words over the course of the month of November. And that seemed like a really daunting number, but you break it down by a certain word count every day. And by doing that, I was able to make this goal. In fact, I think I even surpassed it and hit 60,000. And by the end of it, although I hadn't known what I was going to write, this story kind of started to tumble out and I liked what I had discovered. And I didn't know how to end it though. And so I sat with it for a really long time, many years, actually. And so I would keep working on it. And then a theater project would come up like a play. And so I would put it down for months at a time and, and go and write the play. And then I would come back to it. But each time I came back to it, I, I still liked it. I was still engaged by it. And to me, that's the sign that there's something there. So I kept working on it and uh, eventually figured out what the ending was going to be. And then did many, many revisions. I, I signed with my agent quite a while ago, actually. And she said, when I signed with her, she's like, well, I'm going to want you to do another pass of revisions before we start submitting it. And I was like, oh, yeah, that should be no problem. I just had a baby, like literally like 10 days earlier. And I was like, oh, my baby will probably sleep all the time. I'll get to do these revisions while he sleeps. <laughs> so that, that, that didn't happen. <laughs> he didn't sleep. I had one of those non-sleeping babies. <laughs> so it took a really long time. But eventually I did get the draft turned in and we started the submission process. But that was a really, that was a really hard process. The response to the book was very positive, but 
people were having a lot of trouble figuring out where it landed, which is, I think, kind of what you were talking about in your intro. It, because it, the book sort of sits between, and now it's marketed now as upmarket horror or literary horror, because it really kind of sits between literary fiction and genre. And so it took us a while to find a home. And I had a, uh, some close calls, which were both encouraging, but also heartbreaking when they didn't happen. Editors at various houses who got on the phone with me and gave me lots of notes and offered to reread. And I did multiple drafts over these years. And, and the story really, really changed. I'm very grateful to these editors who spent that time with me. Like they hadn't purchased the book, but they were interested in it. And so they, they offered to get on the phone. They, they each spent about 45 minutes with me on the phone going through notes. And then I did that revision and sent it into them again. But then for one reason or another, they had to pass. And so those close calls were, as I said, sort of reaffirming in some ways, because it made me feel like I was close. There was something there, but also so heartbreaking to come so close and then not have that yes. But finally, we, we found a, I did another, you know, more revision and found a really great home for it. And I couldn't be happier with the editor who I worked with. It's just amazing at Atria Books, which is an imprint of Simon & Schuster. And she just got the book. And so I'm, I'm very happy to be here, but it has been a long journey. Yeah, such an inspiring, inspiring journey because for many of our listeners, you feel like that landing the agent is a really tough part. And then after that, it's free sailing. And like Jennifer said, you get these lovely rejections. That's a nice thing about being out on submission. Whereas when you query with agents, most of them, you won't hear from them or you'll just get a form no. Whereas when you go out on submission with editors, you do get these lovely kind of rejections. But the more lovely the rejection is, the actually harder it is. And and I was recently went through that. Cece and I went through that with the Witches of Moonshine Manor, where we got quite a lot of rejections, but editors were saying, this is an incredibly special book. We love it. I read the whole thing, even though I don't know how to market contemporary fantasy. And you kind of go, well, if it's so great, why the hell aren't you buying it? You know, but that's the thing. What Jennifer just said is trying for an editor to position a book is so important. And that's why comps up front is so important. And that's why when so many of you pitch to books and hooks and you say, oh, my story straddles various genres and you kind of see this as a positive, but often it makes it that much harder for the book to sell because it's not easy for the agent to say it is X and Y and will sit on the shelf next to this. So for me, Jennifer, my question to you is during all of those revisions, during all of that feedback you got, did the book become more of one genre and less of the other? Because I must be honest, when I started reading it, I didn't check to see what genre it was. I thought it was like psychological thriller. I kind of read it as a thriller. And then as I went on, I was going, oh, I'm getting kind of horror vibes, but not huge horror vibes because I am a bit of a wuss. I can't read major horror. So was anything watered down in that process? That's a great question. And actually, I would say it was watered up. <laughs> no, I know, I know that's not a term. <laughs> yeah, I did not think of it as horror. I, To me, the word horror implies 
those sort of gory, a level of gore that I'm personally, I, I'm also, a, I've, I don't read that sort of thing. I can't watch scary movies. Uh, maybe my imagination is just too active or something. But I was very much thinking psychological thriller. Those are the kind of books I love reading. And really what I was very interested in, because not just this idea of like a monster, but very much what's going on internally, mentally, what's happening to the character. And I had lots of questions about where does fear live? And how much of it is, is it something that we're sort of like, is this idea of a place that's haunted? Are we walking into that? Are we bringing that with us? And how trauma sort of connects into that? So I was very much in that land of psychological thriller. But as I kept writing, one of the comments that I was getting was also that it felt like the book was promising something that didn't get delivered at the ending. Everything was sort of gearing towards there being some kind of a essentially like a monster or something, right? Because there's all this tension building up to something. And so, and I really wrestled with that because I wasn't sure that I actually wanted to have a ghost in the book. I don't know if I believe in ghosts. And I guess I'm open to the possibility, but I don't know that I actually believe in them. And so I really wrestled with, can this actually deliver the sort of satisfaction that I want it to deliver, but also explore this idea of fear very much being uh, something that's living inside the head, inside the mind of my protagonist. And uh, eventually, I think through lots of thinking and, you know, a lot of feedback and that sort of thing, I came to agree that there has to be something actually down there in the basement, essentially. She's, there has to be some kind of an external confrontation for the reader to feel satisfied. And I sort of found my resolution for it by putting my unsureness about whether ghosts could even be real into my protagonist. So she and I started thinking, well, what happens if I have a protagonist who claims that she does not believe in ghosts and she has a good reason for why she doesn't believe in ghosts, which has to do with the death of her mother. She doesn't believe in ghosts and yet she confronts a ghost. That What happens then? So that's sort of how I came to resolve it. And the tension and all of that sort of thing, the creepy factor, that stuff was so much fun to write. So when I was getting notes about, can you notch it up here? Can you notch it up there? That was just utterly delightful to get to to get to write. So I would say that the book sort of moved more towards genre as I kept writing and as I embraced really what it was going to need to be, which was this sort of confrontation at the climax. Yeah. And that's the experience I find of a lot of writers. They kind of sit down to write something and they're not sure what it is. And they go, well, it's different to other things. And they go, they'll classify it sort of as a more quiet book or as X or as Y. And they kind of stubbornly cling to that. And then eventually they'll do the thing that they kind of should have done in the beginning, which was decide what genre it was and kind of lean into that. Because it's true, you you have to, if you are going to be building towards something in a novel, if you're going to be creating tension, there has to be this thing that you're building up to there because that is what's keeping the reader asking questions. That's what's keeping, it's keeping them turning pages. And the last thing you want is for the reader to feel let down and feel like the whole thing is anticlimactic, which absolutely didn't happen. I kept turning the pages and I was fascinated by the tension that was created, but I did definitely see it as a metaphor as well. Like you say, 
this thing under the stairs, this monster under our bed, how much of it is in our minds, how much of it is real. And just for our listeners, let me just give you a, the flap copy of the book. So it says, few in sleepy Sumner's mills have stumbled across the octagon house hidden deep in the woods. Even fewer are brave enough to trespass. A man had killed his wife and two young daughters there, a shocking, gruesome crime that the sleepy upstate New York town tried to bury. One summer night, an emboldened 14-year-old Claire and her best friend Abby ventured into the octagon house. Claire came out, but a piece of Abby never did. Twenty years later, an adult Claire receives word that Abby has attempted suicide at the octagon house and now lies in a coma. With little to lose and still grieving after a personal tragedy, Claire returns to her roots to uncover the darkness responsible for Abby's accident. It's classified an eerie page-turner beneath the stairs is about the trauma that follows us from childhood to adulthood and returning to the beginning to reach the end. So certainly a lot to unpack there. When you were pitching it to editors, what kind of comps were, were you using? What comparative titles was your agent pitching it as? Can you recall? Yes. The Haunting of Hill House is definitely one that gets referred to a lot by Shirley Jackson. I mean, I love that. I love that book. <laughs> um, and, and I think that is very much the house. The house in this book is a thing is a it's haunted and so it's it's really coming from something that's in the house but the house is very much a character also stephen king i don't not, not necessarily a particular title of his maybe maybe it and that was certainly a book that influenced me there's the dual timelines so that's part of it in the there are multiple timelines in, in the book but the the main two are present day claire who's trying to solve this mystery but then we also go back and forth into uh, 20 you know 20 years so years previous when Claire is 14 years old and initially goes into this house with her best friend Abby and so that's the kind of calls to it where you have this return of the it the thing whatever that is and the two timelines there so those were the main two that were used and those those ring true to me, I think. It's, it's sometimes interesting, though, to hear comps that are given to your work because sometimes you're so deep in it, it's really hard to see. And that's where it's so great to have somebody on the outside looking in. It's also, though, it's so interesting because I feel like it's this, I wanted to, I wanted to publish with a big publisher, of course, and I wanted the book to come out and that sort of thing. And so there was some level of, you need to go further, right? If you, if you say that you're doing this sort of thing, and, and it's like what you were talking about, right? You want to deliver the goods because you're really asking people to commit a lot of time, right? You're, if you're making a promise, you need to deliver on that. But I also wanted to stay true to the book that I wanted to write and the questions that I wanted to ask. And so it felt very much like this sort of negotiation within myself of what can I write that still feels true to who I am and organic and all of that sort of thing, but is also marketable. And that's probably something that I will have to negotiate with every book I write. Yeah. And, um, and that's and just that's, me. That's, that's a very important part of the process because we are, as writers, we are the creators of the work and we have a vision for it. But if your vision doesn't excite the people who are going to be publishing your book, then you have to make a decision. You go one of two ways. You're like, well, I'm an artiste and I will not change my work. 
And even if no one reads it, I have been true to the work or you start to compromise and you start to say, okay, how can I make this more commercial in terms of the way you can sell it while still staying true to the vision that I have of the book? And I feel like that is a push and pull with any writer. It's not often that the vision you have for the book is one that's immediately embraced by everybody else, but certainly it's part of the give and take that's involved in the creative process because writing is solitary. That's what you do by yourself. That's art, but then you hand it over to an agent and to an editor, and then it becomes this commodity. It's something that needs to be sold and they need to find a market for it. So always something that we need to keep in mind. Something else that you said, Jennifer, that I love is how is setting as character. So in this instance, the house became a character. Again, in my latest novel, Moonshine Manor, this creepy old manor, that was the first character I came up with before I really came up with the actual witches. I had to do the floor plan for this three-story manor and figure out whose bedrooms were where and what little secrets the manor had and figure out its personality because it was such an important part of the story. And for our listeners, your setting may be a creepy old mansion. It may be a country. So in my first two novels, I was told to make South Africa a character in the novel for my North American readers. So don't underestimate the power of a, a really strong setting whether it's an Irish island or whether it's this house. Was this something you had to come to grips with when you were writing about the house, floor plans, figuring out where everything went? Did you do that beforehand or as you went along? I I had my mic off, but I was laughing as you were talking about the floor plan because I did exactly the same thing. Um, Yes, I do. I think very visually, a story will often start with an image. You know, in my case, this is actually I, when I was 13, I went into an octagonal house that was abandoned and supposedly haunted. And I guess that sort of inspires this, though the house that is in my book is much bigger and, and very different from the one that I went into. Really, the only thing that kind of remained was this idea of it being an octagon. It's just such a strange detail, but that's carried over from my personal experience. I also had a very clear sense of how the house was laid out. And there I can go back through my, I always have a notebook next to me that I like to make lists in and keep track of dates and and I draw a floor plan. And so that was really important to me to remain consistent for one thing and also to think about how to describe what I'm seeing in my head so that a reader can walk through in the same way. I mean, for me, I think setting is is so important because I think that setting, in the same way that I think that some objects, it holds emotional, res- like there's emotional resonance in, in a place. And how one person relates to a place is very different from how another person relates to a place. And so to me, those are, it's such a rich opportunity to really bring layers into your the world of your story. And it doesn't matter what type of story you're telling. The setting is, to me, it's so integral to who the story belongs to and why they're there and the and you know tension and all of that sort of thing. So so yeah, the the and the house was honestly it was just it was just so fun to write. And so to kind of come up with the details and that was very much coming out of me kind of walking around it in my own mind. And I would only ever walk around it in my own mind. I would never go into it <laughs> myself because I am a big chicken. Yeah. 
I was reading that. I was like, get the hell out, people. But that's all so helpful. So for our listeners, if you're wondering if your setting is a character, ask yourself, could this story take place anywhere else? So for example, my first two novels were about apartheid South Africa. So they could not have taken place anywhere else but in South Africa, not just at that setting, but at that period in time. Time and place anchored those stories very, very much. And the same is with my new novel. It takes place in this creepy mansion. It can't take place anywhere else because this mansion informs everything. So if you're writing a story that it's like, oh, could it be Baltimore? Could it be Ireland? It doesn't really matter because the characters are doing their thing and I could just change the details, then setting is not character. But if the story could not take place kind of anywhere else, because the setting and the time and the period defines everything that happens within the constraints of that novel, then very much you have setting as character and you really need to play that up as much as possible. And like Jennifer said, you can have an awful lot of fun with it. For those of you, if you're writing cozy mysteries, draw a map of the town. If you're going to write multiple books that happen in like a Three Pines kind of Louise Penny situation, draw the town for yourself. If you have things happening on a row of houses, draw the streets so that you know where the baker is and where the library is, etc., etc. If a house or whatever is important to you, draw that floor plan. And for those of you writing fantasy, have your maps, you know, like they have in Game of Thrones, so that you know where the wall is and where the north is and where this is and where that is. So those kinds of stories lend themselves very much to setting. And they allow for a lot more description. So is writing description something that comes naturally to you, Jennifer? It's interesting to me that you're a playwright and not a screenwriter, because I find screenwriters to be much more visual in terms of imagining scenes and scenarios than playwrights are. Yeah, it's writing description was actually difficult for me. I could see it all in my head, but then figuring out how to describe it was a challenge. I mean, I'm very used to imagining a scene as it sort of lives in like bodies moving around in space. And I think that has to do with the fact that I'm used to seeing my story literally happening in front of me with actors. So that is very familiar to me. And and I know how much story can be told through body language and where people are placed and what they're looking at, where their focus is and all of that sort of thing. But for me, and this was one of the interesting learning parts of the learning curve, I guess, moving from writing for theater to writing for the page was having to start weaving all of that in and and then learning rhythmically. Where do you put in description? Where do you put in those moments of thought, that interiority and that sort of thing? Because in a play, those things are kind of happening simultaneously with the dialogue. But in a book, they're not. We go through them one at a time. And so it was fun to do, but it was also challenging. And that's, again, also where that floor plan and, and being able to draw it out for myself helped me figure out, okay, I'm a really big advocate of sort of like breaking, you know, moving away from the screen sometimes, like away from your computer and and exploring things in other ways. Because I think the more different, like the more ways you can find to come at your story and the world of your story, the more you're going to discover. And so making a, a floor plan or that sort of thing, thinking about how something would have looked, I'm having to make decisions and all of those decisions are related to character. So yeah, so it, it really helped me because there were, there were literally times when I would like look at what I had drawn and then be 
trying to describe that because it was a it was a new thing for me. Yeah, and and what you just said as well about stage actors bring the gestures to life because as a playwright you write the dialogue, maybe some stage direction, but it's up to the actor to really interpret the role and decide how the character moves through the space. And that's something that's really helpful to writers is when you are writing a scene, sort of close your eyes and picture some stage actor or an actor you have in mind and picture them how they would move through the space, the gestures they would use, because these are the kinds of things you have to work into your action beats. Because remember, you always have to give a reader something to imagine in between the dialogue, etc. You can't just have these talking heads. You want to show how the character moves through the world, because this reveals so much about character as well. Well, Jennifer, our time is up. I don't know how that quite happened. We flew through it. Thank you so, so much for joining us. For our listeners, I'm going to put Beneath the Stairs on our bookshop.org affiliate page so that you can find it there. It's a wonderful book to read in terms of learning how to up the stakes, how to maintain tension and working towards that payoff, as we were saying. We wish you much success with it, Jennifer. Thank you so much. It was so fun to get to talk to you. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. 
Hi everyone, welcome to another Q&A with Carly and Cece, whereby they answer the questions that you have phoned in with. Now for our listeners who haven't yet phoned in with questions, go to the website biancamarie.com, go to the podcast page, there is a link there whereby you can phone in and request comps, or you can phone in to ask us questions. Remember, it does cut you off after one minute. Some people tend to ramble a bit and then they don't quite get to their question and they have to call in again. So it might help to write it down beforehand to collect your thoughts, but we will try and get to them as soon as possible. So Carly is going to kick us off with the first question. Hi, Bianca, Carly and Cece. This is Kristen from Alabama. I am a huge fan of the podcast and I love the new segment and I'm so grateful to you guys for taking our questions. I'm working on a book that is historical fiction and my question is, there were two prior books, both written in the early 2000s, that concern my historical characters. My book focuses on a different time period in their lives and a different relationship for the main character. And so I guess my question is, do these two prior works sync my work just right off the bat? Or do I need to acknowledge those two prior works and distinguish my own work in the query letter? Thank you so much for your thoughts. I appreciate it so much. You guys have given me permission to dream. And for that, I'm so grateful. Take care. What's your answer to that, Carly? My answer is that I think you're free. I think you're free to kind of, you know, just pitch the book however you want. I don't think you even need them as comps because if they're early 2000s, then it's not actually that useful as a comp. The only issue, and especially the reason you wouldn't want to draw attention to them, would be if they didn't sell all that well. And I know it's, again, hard to know. You probably don't have access to that data. If they sold phenomenally, they're still kind of not a comp, again, because they're from the early 2000s. So I think you're free. I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't worry too much about this. Wonderful. Cece, was there anything you wanted to add to that? That permission to dream was the best line I've heard all day. So thank you so much for saying that. That was so kind, Kristen. Wonderful. Thanks, Cece. All right, let's go to question two. Hi, ladies. Bianca, you've often referenced that the middle is the hardest part of the manuscript to write, and I really find that. I'm on my third now. I'm determined to push through, but it's happening again where I feel like I'm drying up or the characters seem to want to do weird things that aren't on the plot points that I've organized for myself. Do you have any guidance about how to muddle through that or what's going wrong and why has this happened? If it happens to lots of us, I really appreciate it. And I love the podcast. Cece, since you're also a writer, besides being an agent, why don't you tackle that one? So the muddle in the middle is real. I do think it happens to a lot of writers and I suspect it's because the middle of the story requires questions to be answered. And after offering answers, it can be tough to maintain enough tension to really ramp up the stakes and bring us to the finish line with at gusto, with that energy. So my advice is to go to the bookshelf in your office and take out three or four of your favorite books, the ones that you were just like, oh my gosh, I could not stop talking about these books after I read them, and literally open them in the middle, like crack them open in the middle. And then analyze the scenes that are happening, analyze all the good stuff that's going into the midpoint for two reasons. Reason number one is psychological. Remind yourself that that author created the magic that you are now creating and that it's possible. And reason number two is to reverse engineer whatever they did. So yes, it's real. I get it. It's, it, it's part of the process. So it means you're a writer. Congratulations. But it can be done. And reverse engineering others' works is really the best way to do it. Wonderful advice, Cece. And something that I just want to add to that is, you know, if you're using the three act structure, the first act is 25% of your novel, the third act is 25% of your novel, 
which means act two, which is your middle, is 50% of the novel. And that's why it is so, so tough. And we always have an idea of how we're going to begin. And we generally have an idea of what we're working towards. But it's that middle part that we tend to get mired. And honestly, my advice to you is to go to Jessica Brody's Save the Cat Writes a Novel. You know, she deals with the three-act structure and that middle bit by really, really breaking it down for you in an almost kind of formulaic way to say you need false victories, you need false defeats, you need the sort of long dark night of the soul from which the character bounces back from. You need to keep escalating stakes. Stakes need to keep getting higher so that the tension ratchets up, etc. And I find that if you look at it that way and you look at your story in that kind of formulaic way and saying, okay, if the character in the beginning is having a false victory, how can I give them a false defeat that then follows or vice versa, etc. So, you know, for me, when I kind of get stuck in the middle, that's when I like to go back to, to that kind of approach to story writing, because, you know, that book also breaks it down in terms of a whole bunch of novels that have been written across multiple genres. And you can see, okay, what happened in their middles that really upped the stakes, up the tension, kept the reader asking questions and turning pages. So I hope that helps there. All right, Carly, question three. Hi, I absolutely love your podcast. It's extremely helpful and I recommend it to all writers I meet. My question is related to finding the right agent for my novel. I noticed that some agents list romance genre on their wish list, but when I check the publishing market website, I find that in the last three years, they didn't sell romance at all. Should I still query them or not? Thank you so much for your help. So for this question, I want to remind everybody that what you see on Publishers Marketplace and what you see in deal announcements or Publishers Weekly is not the full picture, you know? So if you are looking for agents that represent certain things and they say they represent it, I think it's fine to query them because just because you don't see deal announcements doesn't mean the deals don't exist, right? So every agent has to put in these deal announcements, right? And so there are just some agents that are either behind in the reporting or, you know, we're in the contract stage, we haven't announced it yet. So I wouldn't put all of your weight on publishers marketplace in terms of if somebody is actually selling or not so if it's on their wish list then it's on their wish list for a reason for example i have romance on my wish list i don't work on a lot of romance but i'm still always looking for that special romance a series i would love a small town romance series like i've been looking for it for 10 years haven't found it right so there's things that we always have on our wish list that you know we're always looking for the right project so make sure you query widely and take publishers weekly and publishers marketplace with a grain of salt wonderful carly thanks and and also isn't it true, you know, as agents that your wish list will change as the market changes and evolves and maybe some book comes out and that creates a huge demand because you speaking to editors and suddenly editors are all like, I want this kind of book. So maybe it's not something that you represented before, but now it's something that you're interested in. So just because you haven't sold that book doesn't mean you won't be able to sell that kind of book in the future. That's so true. And, you know, what I would say is what our wish lists reflect what we are excited to shop around because it reflects what editors want. That's that's what you should focus on. So yes, if we took the time to put it in our wish list, then we want it. Please send it to us. Awesome, Cece. Okay, Cece, will you kick us off with question four? Hi, the majority of my novel is written in first person present tense, single person POV, but I have several flashback chapters and I'd like to write those in third person past tense. Is that doable or is that just crazy? Thank you. Doable? Sure. 
but it does make it, and I'll be honest here, a really big challenge in terms of keeping readers engaged, especially since flashbacks are supposed to feel seamless. This, to me, is really the crux of the issue. I'm not supposed to even realize I'm going on a flashback. It's supposed to feel organic, and if you switch from first to third, that will likely not be the case. I will probably be very aware of the flashbacks. So... Personally, I think it probably will be distracting and jarring, but that being said, I'm always willing to be surprised. You know what's best for your story, so if this is something you feel strongly about, I would attempt to do it the traditional way to make sure that you've mastered the technique, but if it's not right for your novel, then you're the only person who can actually know that, and there are books out there that break the rules and break them really well, so yeah, that's my advice. Yeah, always my advice. If you're going to break the rules, that's great. Just do it really, really well. All right. And now, Carly, question five. Hello, my name is Sue, and I've been listening to the podcast since October of last year, and I'm finding it really useful. So thank you for recording the podcast, and please keep doing it. My question is specifically about writing a synopsis for a collection of short stories. I wonder if I should be writing a two or three line synopsis of each story or if I should be trying to treat it as if it were a novel. I have a collection of integrated short stories. It's basically a novel in short stories that I'm trying to uh, get published. I'd be appreciative of any advice you can give. Thank you so much. Okay, so I think there's a couple things at play here. There's obviously the fact that it is an overarching, single, kind of connected story grouping, but they're all individual stories. So I do think you have to do two things. I think you need to write a half a page synopsis that covers the entire arc, if it is like a character we're following. I'm thinking of like Mona Awad's 13 Ways of Looking at a Fat Girl, where it's like we have all these very separate but also connected stories. So, you know, that's one that comes to mind. But when I am thinking about how I want to read a synopsis, I want to know how are these all connected, of course, but what is the synopsis for each of the individual stories? Because we're going to need that later when we're going through the editing phase or we're thinking about like, "Mm, what's the order of these stories? There are many reasons we would want both versions of the synopsis. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Carly. Well, that's it for our Q&A this week. Keep phoning in with the questions and we'll keep answering them for you. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup 
for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists, while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.